Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning's reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and runs through to chapter 2, verse 11. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. I'm waiting for someone to make some um, unscented spray. That'd be nice because this stuff, I come home of a Sunday night, it's like go to the shower, <laughs> smell of all the spray. Um, today's a, a good week, it's kind of a normal Sunday with nothing exceptional happening, and we're just looking at the next part of Philippians together. And it's part of the Bible that we've been looking at through Growth Group as well. So the sermon's been written by the Growth Groups. It's, it's one of those really good weeks. But if you could keep the passage open, so we're, today we're just looking at what was read. Nothing complicated, not flying over the Bible and looking at different parts of it, just what's in front of us. And how about we pray that we would um, understand and put into practice what we read. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can look at your word together. And Father, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts. Please help us to understand what it means to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 27, that's, I reckon, the key verse in this letter. The Apostle Paul, his concern there is that the Christians in Philippi live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. A manner that's worthy or deserving or fitting or appropriate, 
all kind of familiar words to us. I mean, even as kids, you get to understand what it means to behave in a worthy manner in an appropriate way. So when we um, first sent the kids to school here, the year four teacher told Lachlan's class she wanted to see restaurant manners. And they weren't going to a restaurant, but the kids understood and the teacher understood. That means good behaviour is expected. Another little example, when we were growing up as kids, our parents told us, you don't address adults by their first name, their mister or their missus, or perhaps auntie or uncle. And we had aunts and uncles that weren't actually aunts and uncles. But that was the way to show respect. And it's not that if we did, if we got it wrong, if we called an adult by their first name, it wasn't that we stopped being members of the family. We weren't um, sent off from the family because we disobeyed our parents like that. But behaving in a, in a way that was appropriate, it, it kind of, the understanding is we were being respectful. We are acknowledging our parents. We were behaving in a way that they would want us to behave, not so that we would be part of the family, but because we were part of the family. Um, maybe another example might help you. So what the preacher wears at church. I could wear anything, couldn't I? I could, I could be up here barefoot and I wouldn't lose my job. But it does sort of matter what you wear. Like if, if I had a torn T-shirt on, Someone's going to get offended. Well, I'm not sure, but they might. But we, we just have this understanding that some things are expected. Some things are worthy of the situation, the context, the moment. So the Apostle Paul's concern in 1 verse 27 is that the Christians in Philippi live in a, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And then down in 2 verse 1, as you keep reading through the passage, when you come to 2 verse 1, he kind of comes back to, to the motivation that sits behind the reason you would want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But when he says um, live a life worthy, he doesn't mean that we need to set out to earn our forgiveness or to earn the right um, to be forgiven. He's not saying that unless you behave in a way that's worthy of the gospel, you're not a Christian. It's more that your life will show that you understand all the privileges that you have as someone who's responded to the gospel of Jesus. And the rest of today's passage what it does is it explains what Paul expects to see in the Philippians in the context in which they are living in as people who are living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. There's implications for how they respond to how other people treat them on the outside and there's implications for how they treat each other within the church, within um, the fellowship. So have a closer look at verse 27. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Um, the word that's translated conduct yourself, if you can get behind that a bit, it's this idea of um, your social responsibility, the way that you interrelate with other people. It's like your duty as a citizen, perhaps. But Paul's concerned with their citizenship in the gospel, that they're living as worthy citizens. And if you remember looking back into Acts chapter 16 last week, how important Roman citizenship was for the Philippians, here, Paul's not concerned about their Romanness. He's concerned about their Christianness and that they live in a way that shows that they're citizens. He wants to behave among other people in such a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And the rest of the passage unpacks what that's going to look like for them in Philippi. So verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. 
I would say there's a lot of other things that would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus, like perhaps the way you behave in your home, loving your wife, caring for the kids, um, the way you honour your parents, the way you behave in the workplace. All these things would, would show an understanding of the gospel. But for the Philippians, Paul's concern is that they contend as one for the gospel. And if they're doing that, whether he's there or not, he'll know that they're standing firm. Um, that they're uh, living in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul returns to this this idea of unity and like-mindedness. If you look down at chapter 2, verse 2, he'll come back there. But let's not jump ahead. Stay with verse 27 and 28. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So again, if you think about the context we saw last week when we dipped into Acts chapter 16, the new Christians in Philippi, they were up against opposition um, to the gospel. If you think of Lydia and her whole household becoming Christian, think about um, them growing in their confidence as young Christians. Think about the jailer and his household working through all their questions um, and all the others that would have joined uh, their church, their fellowship. And then around them, you've got um, constant pressure from people like the ones who saw Paul and Silas thrown in, beaten and thrown into prison, them and others who have rejected the gospel, putting pressure on these young Christians. And so if you look at 1 verse 30, Paul says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have, as they become Christians, they've joined Paul in this struggle for the gospel, standing up for the truth of the gospel. Life for a Christian in Philippi, it meant living with opposition, joining Paul in his struggle. And in verse 29, he says, well, you've just got to expect that. So verse 29, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And so as Paul writes to them, he wants to see, he wants to hear um, that they're living in a manner worthy, worthy of the gospel. He'll know that if they're united, standing firm in the gospel, contending for the truth of the gospel, despite this opposition, which they should expect and which he himself is experiencing. And I just think for us, as we read this, so we're in Brisbane in 2021, we may not endure the kind of opposition that these young Christians did in Philippi or that um, Paul did in, in Rome, but the thing is we should expect it. And I'm not sure that we do expect it. Um, We tend to expect everyone to be nice to us as Christians. I mean, we're Christian after all. Um, We like to think that the government will be kind to us. In our kind of vain moments, we think that people will respect Christian values. But when you think about it, Australians in general are more tolerant and accommodating of Islam or LGBT groups, or Baha'i, or selfish materialism than they are of Bible-believing Christians who will speak the truth of God's word boldly. When we speak up, well, we get treated like Israel Folau. When we speak up for the truth of the gospel and say firmly what the Bible teaches, we get slammed. When we speak out against euthanasia or abortion, well, we get misrepresented and we get shunned. Um, When we vote against same-sex marriage, which we were totally entitled to do, we still get labelled and slandered. When we speak about the sinfulness of human nature, we get ridiculed and scorned. And when when we call on people to repent and turn back to God, they accuse us of being judgmental. And when we talk about God judging, well, they'll call us hypocrites 
Philippians 1 verse 29, Paul tells the Philippians, expect that. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Expect it and more. And I'm thinking, yeah, so should we. Yeah, we might be having a smooth run for the time being, but when you stop and think about it, yeah, if we are bold, if we stand up, if we contend for the truth of the gospel, we know that we'll be, we will be opposed. We'll be made to feel uncomfortable. We may even be persecuted. If we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy, we want to stand firm, united, and continue to contend for the gospel. Uh, we'll keep explaining and defending the gospel. And if you think back to Paulus and Silas, uh, Paul and Silas, Think back again to Acts chapter 16. Think about how they were beaten, publicly shamed, thrown in prison, and yet that night they prayed and sang praises to God. They stood firm, united in the gospel, and when the authorities wanted to, you know, bury the fact that they'd had a Roman citizen whipped, Paul stood his ground and pushed back. And verse 29, Paul tells the Philippians, to expect that as Christians, they are going to join him in both trusting in God like he does and in suffering for God like he does. Um, Then you look at verse 28 again. Paul goes on, if the Philippians, if they do stay united, um, if they're not afraid, then their behaviour will impact on those who oppose them. And it doesn't kind of read how you'd expect it to this part. So it goes, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. I think we tend to see it this way. We tend to think that in order to respond to those who oppose us, we need to come back with a better argument. Or in order to um, respond to those who oppose us, we need to kind of justify our position or prove our point, or perhaps show that actually being a Christian is a success story, it's good for you. We, We think that sort of way, but Paul says, no, if you stand united and if you're not afraid, well, that's going to speak volumes. It's going to be a sign to these people who are opposing you um, when they see your lack of fear, when they contemplate the way that you are not afraid in this situation, it'll be a challenge to them to think about the truth that actually maybe they're not opposing you, they're opposing God. That's the kind of way this verse is going. Your humble trust in God despite opposition, your assurance in the gospel points to the certainty of God's grace the confidence you can have as a Christian, the reality of God's sovereignty, the expectation of God's judgment in a way that is a warning sign to those who oppose you, is what Paul's saying. So the Apostle Paul, he's concerned in 1 verse 27 that the Christians in Philippi live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus, and he's saying, if you are, then we'll see it in the way that you stand firm, contending as one person for the gospel, not afraid of opposition. And then when you come to chapter 2, at the start of chapter 2, you've got the therefore there, and I think what's happening is Paul adds further explanation to his appeal to live a life worthy of the gospel by kind of giving more motivation to live this way. So he says in 2 verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and you know there's a then coming, But as you look through that verse, it's like he's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are in fact a Christian, if you understand and appreciate all that Jesus has won for you, if you know God's love, if you're experiencing God's compassion, if you appreciate what it means to be united with Christ as believers, 
if all these things or the then will come. And, and as you look through the verse, it's kind of, it echoes what you'll read in the Old Testament. So if you went to Isaiah 40, it's like Paul's choosing this language of Isaiah 40. Um, Isaiah 40 is a turning book in that prophecy. So Isaiah 40 verse 1 goes, Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. It's like the prophet Isaiah looking forward to when Jesus, when God will deal with sin, looking forward to um, the people of God being called back to God, uh, just the experiencing forgiveness and the comfort of God. It's like Paul saying, you as Christians, you know the fulfilment of every Old Testament hope. That's where you are as Christians. You're living for the Messiah. He's your, your Christ. He's your Saviour. He's your Lord. Um, and then the then comes in verse 2. So therefore in verse 1 shows that Paul, he's still wanting the Philippians to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and he's unloading what the gospel does for them. And then in verse 2 he goes, then this is how you'll live. If they understand the privileges that they have in the gospel, then they'll live like this. Verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and and one and of one mind. If they understand the gospel, if they understand they have the fulfilment of every Old Testament promise, then they'll be like-minded. And it echoes 1 verse 27, the unity, I guess, that he's talking about there. But in chapter 1, the focus was on standing united, standing firm united. Here, it's the focus is on how they treat each other as believers within the church, I guess. Um, He's unpacking how they should relate to one another, expressing the same kind of love that God has shown them um, and that they've experienced in the gospel. And so what Paul says to the Philippians, I reckon it rings true for us as well. As Christians, we do know the comfort of God that's in the gospel. Um, Through Jesus' death in our place, our sins are forgiven. We don't deserve that. And yet we know we have assurance. We know the tenderness and the compassion of God. And all that motivates us to show some of that same kind of love and compassion to each other. Um, Jesus said that people will know you are my disciples by the way you love each other. It's true. This is what this is saying. If you understand God's love expressed in the gospel, it'll show in the way you treat each other. It's a love that comes from knowing Jesus, a love that comes from knowing the gospel, knowing God's goodness and God's compassion. Verse 2, though, it also says um, be one in spirit and one in mind, like be like-minded. And I reckon now that is a little bit more challenging to to, to have to agree with Christians. It's not saying um, brush over your differences, don't talk about where you disagree. It's saying agree with each other, be like-minded. And that means we need to work hard at agreeing so that we can stand united as we contend for the gospel and as we build each other up in unity Um, But perhaps the next bit of the passage helps give the kind of the tools for working on this unity, working on this agreement together, because the passage continues, verse 2 of chapter 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Our understanding of God and everything he's done for us 
should show in the way that we treat each other, the way we regard others as more important than ourselves. We should see our understanding of the gospel in our self-sacrificial humility, our genuine concern for others. And if we can live like that, the behaviour that he's describing there, it's going to be a whole lot easier to get on with each other, isn't it? And to genuinely be united and bound together. So the challenge of being like-minded, the challenge of working through your differences is much easier if we have this kind of humility where you've got the patience to actually hear someone out, put yourself in their shoes, understand where they're coming from. Nine times out of ten, you end up landing in a very similar place because you're trying to live for God together. The task of being like-minded is so much easier if we each accept correction too. If you're willing to have someone say, no, that's not right, look at this, this verse here, that's not how it works. If you can humbly accept that sort of correction, then it's so much easier to be like-minded together without brushing away your differences or ignoring them. And so as we prayerfully discuss our differences with humility and a desire to care for the other person, yeah, in my experiences, nine times out of ten, you can agree. You can come to a point where you go, okay, um, without compromising the truth. But back up in um, 2 verse 2, you can see um, the apostle's heart in all this. In 2 verse 2, he says, make my joy complete. Behave in this way. Make me happy by behaving in this way, by showing that you understand the gospel. Back in chapter 1 verse 4, he's already said that he prays with joy for them. And now he says, make his joy complete. To see them um, living in a manner worthy of the gospel in their complicated setting, that will make Uh, Paul joyful, and to see them behaving in that way towards each other, loving each other, being humble towards each other. Um, If they could put Jesus first and if they could put others second and themselves last, that will bring the apostle joy. Long time ago, uh, this I think is the first time I've gone through Philippians with you as church, a long time ago when we went through this same book of the Bible at uni, um, the minister said, he he used this little Sunday school illustration that he said was embarrassingly simple, but it's a bit of fun. So it goes like this. We find joy when we put Jesus first and other people second and yourself last. J-O-Y. For an engineer, that's pretty good spelling. But there's sense to it, isn't it? Although you look around us and the way Australians tend to live is to put yourself first, look after yourself, put up with others and ignore Jesus. That doesn't bring joy, does it? There you go. Little Sunday school moment there. Back to the passage. Living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus, it will show in the way that we treat fellow Christians, the way that we love and the way that we show humility. And we need to let humility shape the way that we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ, which brings us to the most memorable part of this passage. So in 2 verse 5 he says, um, Effectively, he says, have this mind in you that is in Jesus or have in you the way of thinking that Jesus has. The NIV says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he's saying from 2 verse 1, if you personally know Jesus, if you understand the gospel of Jesus, if you experience the fruit of the gospel, then think like Jesus does. Have the mind that Jesus has. And he goes on to show you the mind that Christ has in verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Don't miss the first little phrase there, who being in very nature God. The reason 
that Jesus didn't grasp at power. The reason Jesus didn't grasp at position was because, verse 6, he is in very nature God. That's what his mind is like. Um, In his being, it's in him to act in this way. And verse 5 is saying, as Christians, we should strive to have that same mind, that same way of thinking. We should strive to be like that. And then it unpacks it all. So in verses 6 to 8, it keeps describing the things that Jesus does. Jesus is the subject of all the verbs. Um, Jesus, he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. You should put slave in there, reflecting the way Paul talks about himself back in 1 verse 1. In verse 8, it says, Jesus humbled or humiliated himself still further by being obedient to death, and not just to death, but to death on a cross. As you look at those verses, that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Um, That's Jesus' sacrificial um, offering for sin, giving up himself for our sin. That's the way that we find forgiveness and new life. And in order to achieve all that, Jesus considered the needs of others. Jesus was obedient to his Father in heaven. If you look at verses 6 to 8, as you read across it, does it read like a description of humility or does it read like a description of obedience to God the Father? Because they're related, aren't they? Um, Jesus' obedience to God the Father, it's, it's laced with humility and this mindset in verse 6 that we are to have as well. Um, Jesus behaves and acted in that way because, verse 6, he is in very nature God. Um, and you think back to 2 verse 1, if you know the compassion, if you've experienced that, you know, this is it in this description of what Jesus has done. Then in verses 9 to 11, God the Father is the subject of all the verbs. It's God that does all the rest. So Jesus 6 to 8, God the Father 9 to 11, if you pick it up in verse 9, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you look at those verses, let me read you a bit from Isaiah 45. What Paul's doing is, again, he's got this Old Testament language behind it. He's attributing to Jesus what should only be attributed to God. This is It's written like a, a kind of a hymn but maybe it's because it's just copying the the Hebrew poetry of the Old Testament. So um, I'll read Isaiah 45. You look again at verses 9 to 11. Uh, 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered uttered sin all, all integrity. My translation is a bit wonky. A word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, and my strength. And here in Philippians, Paul's saying, God's exalted Jesus in that way. Philippians 9 to 11 attributes to Jesus the qualities reserved for God. Jesus obediently humbled himself, and God worked out his plans and purposes to see Jesus exalted over everything and everyone. And when you pick up next week in 2 verse 12, Um, Paul's still unpacking what it means to live a life worthy of Jesus. And you can see parallels with how um, God and Jesus interact. But for today, let's just let the verses we've looked at sink in. Looking back over what we've, we've seen today, if you are conducting yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, it will be evident. 
you're living in a way that's worthy of the gospel, it will be evident in the way that you stand and contend for the truth of the gospel, united as you do that, the way that you show no fear to those who oppose you, and it will show in the humility and the love that you have for fellow Christians, the way you work together to be like-minded. We are to have the same mind as Jesus, to be humble and obedient. And when you think about it, that should be so simple because that's what it takes to become a Christian, doesn't it? The Christian life begins with humility, with a recognition of our sin and a desire to be obedient to God. The Christian life begins with that humble repentance, that turning back to God and saying, actually, no, you're in control, God. The truth of the gospel is that we are sinful We naturally reject God's authority over us. We try to live without God and so we deserve his punishment. But because of God's love, because of God's heart, because of God's mind, because of his compassion, he sent his son into the world to humbly become one of us. And unlike us, Jesus lived a sin-free life and by dying in our place, he paid the price for our sin. He's appeased God's righteous wrath at at our sin, made it possible for us to know God's compassion and God's kindness. And so as Christians, that's how you begin your Christian life, with humble obedience, humble repentance. And as a Christian, to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel means just continuing that way, continuing the way that you've begun and asking God to work in us, to change us, to be more like Jesus. And that takes you into verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, which we get to look at next week. So how about I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would continue to work in us to humble us. Please continue to grow our appreciation of everything you've done for us in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Lord, we are sorry for rebelling against you and we ask humbly that you would forgive us through Jesus. And Father, we thank you for sending your son to take the punishment we deserve. We pray that you would continue to work in us to help us live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Please help us to be other person-centred. Please help us to work at being like-minded. And Lord, please help us to contend for, for the gospel united and without fear, with our humble trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.